0: Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston, and I bring diesel consumers tidings of great joy. Oh, wait, we're a little early for that. But let's just remind everybody that we call ourselves Drilling Deep because you need to drill for oil, and oil is the lifeblood of the trucking and transportation industry. We open the podcast today talking about oil, and then we shift to another topic of the day. Today, it's drugs. Specifically, it's about drug testing of drivers, We've got two experts on the subject today, both of them PhDs, both of them professors in the logistic field, and both of them working in Arkansas. I'm speaking of David Voss and Ron Garden, and they will be here in a few minutes. But here's why I said earlier that I bring you tidings of great joy. It's because the International Energy Agency came out with its monthly report the other day, and the opening part of it had a big headline, Tide Turning with a Question Mark. The tide that it sees is turning are oil prices. Now, let's note for the record that the weekly Department of Energy price put out this past week marked the ninth consecutive increase in that benchmark at $3.73 and 4 cents per gallon. It's at its highest level since October 2008. It's been running through the second half 2008 records week after week because prices back then were sliding at the time of the Great Recession started. So if you plotted them against today, today's prices keep bumping into the 2008 levels that were on the way down. But the IEA sees relief. Its forecast is based on more supply, though it also is keeping its demand forecast unchanged, no increases. Note that the IEA does not forecast prices. It just looks at supply and demand. It said in October that global output, actually it said that in in, in October, global output rose 1.4 million barrels per day from September. For a month's gain, that's a big number. Half of that came out of the U.S. coming back online fully from earlier hurricane outages. Even as there was lots of media focus on OPEC plus refusing to put more oil onto the market beyond the 400,000 barrels per day they already agreed to add, and of course the Biden administration asked for more, the reality is that as the IAEA said, the U.S. is now poised to provide the largest increase in supply of any individual country. But the IEA does not see the U.S. increase as temporary. It has increased its forecast for U.S. output. It now sees that growing even more sharply next year and through the rest of this year. Remember, too, that while OPEC Plus may have turned down the Biden administration's request for more, more oil than the 400,000 barrels of data it agreed earlier to add, the fact is that the data from SP Global Plus said that in October, OPEC Plus blew past the 400,000 barrel mark anyway and they still have some spare capacity on the side. Refiners are coming back online from fall maintenance. That helps eliminate squeezes for the act of turning crude oil into products. All of this adds up to that headline. Tide turning? We've talked here about the OPEC call. It's a figure that the IEA produces. It calculates the amount of oil that OPEC or OPEC Plus needs to produce to meet demand after the IEA assumes what supply is going to, be out, be going to be coming out of other non-OPEC countries, and then it also makes an assumption about demand. Here's the best news for diesel consumers in the IEA report. When it talks about the call in the first quarter of 2021, remember, that's just seven weeks away. Here's what the IEA said. In the first quarter of 2022, the group, that's OPEC+, Plus could pump 1.1 million barrels a day above the call on its crude. Provided it continues to unwind its cuts and assuming Iran remains under sanctions, by the second quarter of 2022, OPEC plus crude oil output could rise to 2.2 million barrels a day above the call. The potential 2022 inventory bills could offset a prolonged period of stock draws that are set to last until the end of 21. That's why there was a fair amount of coverage this past, day, past week after the IEA report came out that talked about a surplus that we're certainly in deficit now but that by the first half of next year, you could see a surplus. This is all very good news indeed for consumers. That doesn't mean there might not be upward in prices, but it does mean that when you get to times like these, and it seems like the price is going to go up endlessly, take a deep breath. It may not. The reality is that by this past Wednesday, the price of ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange had dropped more than 14 cents per gallon in just six trading days. That's possibly a sign that the tide is turning and that there's light at the end of the tunnel. You can choose your metaphor. We're going to shift gears here on Drilling Deep, as we always do. Uh, The drug and alcohol clearinghouse, it's getting near two years in operation since it launched. But that hasn't quelled at all the discussion of what types of testing drug and alcohol are preferred. Urine testing remains the basic test. But then there are questions about the efficacy of saliva testing and the cost and intrusiveness of hair testing. Two Arkansas-based academics recently published a paper about the issue and the pros and the cons of various types of testing as the industry grapples with a driver squeeze, nuclear verdict, and higher insurance premiums. Really, they're all tied together when you think about it. And it all comes together in the question of drug and alcohol testing going forward. So joining me today on Drilling Deep, Dr. Doug Voss, he serves as professor of logistics and supply chain management at the University of Central Arkansas, And he holds the Scott E. Bennett Arkansas Highway Commission Endowed Chair of Motor Carrier Management. And Dr. Ron Gordon researches and writes for the Supply Chain Management Research Center in the Sam Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. So we've got, well, I was going to say two Razorbacks, but only one true Razorback uh, (laughs) at the main college. But I I guess to somebody from New York, everybody in Arkansas is a Razorback. Anyway, uh, Ron's work does uh, focus on how public policy affects supply chains. And both of them are here with us today on drilling deep. So, thanks to the both of you. Thank you very much. You. Okay, why do not somebody tell me how this paper came about?
1: Sure. Well, um, as you said, I work at the Supply Chain Management Research Center at the University of Arkansas. Uh, we work with a lot of you know, obviously our own faculty, but also some of the top faculty around the country who've, who've looked at various issues with uh, policy and supply chain management. Uh, and you know, we do a lot with trucking, and so it, you know, it made sense to bring in Doug uh, you know, who's, who's, you know, done some very interesting work on hair testing in trucking. Uh, and, you know, we brought in Doug and, and, you know, wanted to get a, a grasp on the different issues as it relates to drug testing. As you said, you know, there's a lot of debate <laughs> over, uh, you know, you've had urine testing for three decades, uh, but people have identified some issues there in terms of people trying to figure out ways to beat the test substitution. Uh, and that sort of thing, and so there's been this push to supplement that or replace that with saliva testing, with hair testing, uh, and so you know we wanted to lay out the merits of those different types of testing, as well as the uh, debate, particularly over hair testing, which you know hair testing looks back much further than the other two types of testing. Uh, it may be the if you had to pick one, that would be the best way to improve drug related safety you know you might go hair testing but you know the issue there is you know there's there's a fair amount of debate over is it biased uh against people with dark hair uh driver uh privacy issues you know do you have the right to know what somebody did 3 months ago at a barbecue uh and then obviously uh well maybe not obviously but there's uh questions of uh the uh the uh driver shortage you know you've already got these issues with hiring and you know a a wide shift to hair testing would seemingly exacerbate those issues at least in the short term
0: doug, why don't you bring us up to speed on hair testing in terms of it being being governed policy in your paper? you made several references to the trucking alliance. I know that is one of the uh, key goals of that group. It might be i don't want to say the only goal, but certainly they are very vocal on that where does the where does hair testing stand in terms of? adopted FMCsa adopting it as a standard well so the trucking alliance carriers for some time
2: as you mentioned have advocated for the use of hair testing as it currently stands carriers are 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 forced to utilize urine testing and then there are some stereotypically larger carriers who choose to utilize hair testing as well because of the aforementioned um, problems with urine testing and uh, so so for for Some years now they've advocated for that. And, and the key issue there is with these carriers, and I don't think they necessarily see a problem with urine testing. They're not trying not to speak for them, at least in my mind, in my view, you know, nobody's trying to outlaw urine testing. Uh, But it's just a matter of there, there, there's certain, um, certain carriers have different Risk profiles and and uh, so the larger carriers we discuss in our paper, you know, they 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 don't have the ability to have face to face monitoring of their drivers on day to day basis. If there's some sort of nuclear judgment, you know, it has has a long term impact on them. And uh, whereas a smaller carrier, uh, they they certainly don't want to have a crash. And uh, but 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 should there be a large crash, you know, they. They have the ability, with less impact on the general population anyway, to to functionally file bankruptcy, and uh, so so the, the 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 large carriers, I think, for the most part, what they want to do is to have the ability to to submit their uh, their hair test results to the drug and alcohol clearinghouse, and if they should choose not to to not to also have to uh, functionally bear the duplicative cost of hearing tests.
0: Right. Now, let's point out, and, and you do in the paper, that the drug and alcohol clearinghouse has been open for business for almost two years, and there are no tests in there that have come from the result of hair tests, correct? That's correct. Right. And, and what, let me just ask both of you your views on the drug and alcohol clearinghouse. I mean, it's got a pretty decent-sized track record, I would think, by now. Uh, what do you think it's been, has been its impact? Ron, you want to go first?
1: Sure, I, I mean, I think it it you know to to get that information out there to get that all publicly available. Uh, you know, we start the paper uh, with a guy who had, had failed some previous hair tests and and his previous employer or not hair, some previous tests, uh, and his previous employer made a note of that, but the new employer didn't notice that. And so I think you know having it available in this central database, uh, you know, I, I, and you get people in the habit of checking that as part of the you know the hiring. Uh, process. I think, you know, I think that's a, a great thing.
0: Yeah, that's one thing about it, something like that. You you can't really know what didn't happen as a result of it. You know, the hires that didn't get made because somebody was in there. But clearly, uh, I'm sure there've been quite a few of them.
2: Yeah, there there were roughly about um, 60,000 or so, I believe, you know, that are currently disqualified from driving and uh, due to the drug and alcohol clearinghouse. So, and uh, there there have been some recent findings that have, have shown the vast majority of those that are disqualified choose, choose to pursue other occupations because they don't want to go through the federally mandated federally mandated rehabilitation program.
0: Do you get any sense of how many people? I, I shouldn't. I should know this because the data is there. Have gone through the program, and maybe it's not quite as onerous as some people might think. Well, the the, the
1: number of people you know, in the clearinghouse <laughs> they break down. They put out this monthly data, and they break down how many people have done these reentry tests, which is what you would do at the end. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a much smaller number than the new employment hires. I want to say it's maybe somewhere around 10% of, you know, the total number of, t- it's, it's a relatively small number. And so I don't know, you know, how much is that people who don't want to complete the rehabilitation program and how much of that is people who aren't able to get hired back, you know, once they've got that mark on their record. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to discriminate against those folks, but I'm not sure how often that.
0: You know, functionally, how often that happens. Now, in the paper, you do go, you go through the major w- forms of testing. You go through hair testing. You go through urine testing. You go through saliva testing, and you kind of give the pros and cons of each. So, uh, I, and this is a really odd question to ask, but what's your favorite kind of drug testing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so which, which, which do you think is the best? I mean, even, even hair testing. I was interested to read in the paper, which has always been held, held as this 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 um, gold standard it's got a few flaws. Yeah. There's, there's really not a
2: short and sweet answer to that because it depends on what your goals are. You know, maybe the best solution is, is to use some sort of combination of, of tests, you know, hair, hair test is, or hair testing, I should say is, it has a much longer look back period, you know, 60 to 90 days, depending on how much hair you take. Uh, it is more expensive about double the cost of urine testing. And, uh, but it's not good. It's, it's it's not really useful for detecting someone who did drugs in the previous few days before the test was given. Right. So in that sense, you know, it's not the best test, but I, but it's, 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 it's primary purpose really is to detect lifestyle drug users. So if you want something that's going to detect um, the, the, the drug somebody has done in the last few days, you know, urine, or maybe even particularly saliva testing is much more useful for that.
0: Okay. And let's, let's talk about saliva testing because you do recommend in the paper that saliva testing do, uh, should be allowed in the clearinghouse. And and why isn't it yet?
1: Uh, My sense is that it will be soon. You know, it's, it's, you know, everything moves slowly in government and, you know, I haven't heard any real compelling issues for not allowing it. And they, uh, I think we mentioned in the paper at some point, you know, they've, uh, I guess, released, leaked some some uh, boxes. The, the FMCSA, the Department of Transportation, ha- have put out these forms with check boxes for both urine and saliva testing. So seemingly it's, you know, well on its way to happening.
0: So and what are some of the good. pros and cons? I'm sorry, what are some of the pros and cons of saliva testing?
1: Well, I, uh, I think the the pros of it are, you know, it's it's convenient. You know, you can do it. You know, by the side of the road, you can do it. You know, uh, at at the the trucking carriers headquarters, that type of thing. You know, there's no chance to go off, slip off in the bathroom, and you know substitute or you know drop a. There's a lot of interesting ways they try to beat those right. tests, and, and saliva testing is really immune uh, from that. Uh, I guess the con of it would be, in a lot of ways, it's a lateral move from urine testing. You know, if, you, if you're if you in favor of, you know, going back and, and, and knowing what somebody's been doing for the last month, the last three months, saliva testing is not going to do that. In fact, it has shorter windows, detection windows than urine, typically, which only has about a three-day window for most substances. So you're looking, you know, two days or even less in some cases.
0: I'm going to ask a question that I know you can't answer, but hey, so you can take a wild guess, but I'm I'm mostly asking the question to make a point. If we had had hair testing, let's say since the start of the clearinghouse, how many more drivers do you think might be put on the sidelines?
2: About uh, fifty-eight thousand nine hundred and ten.
0: <laughs> All right, and then and then and then tell tell us how you got to that number. I'm assuming it's based on what you know of from the data that the companies that do test uh, have put out there, or at least maybe it told told you.
2: Yeah. So there there have been a, a four. For 2020, the first year of the clearinghouse operation, there were about 1.429 million pre-employment urine screens submitted. And uh so um somewhere around 1.99% of those um failed their urine tests. And uh so if you look at um uh the the uh trucking alliance hair data that we have, uh, their, their, their failure rate was about 6.11%. And, and uh, so if you take the 1.429 million DAC drivers, multiply that by 6.11, the same 1.429 multiplied, uh, uh, by the, uh, the 1.99 and, and, uh, subtract those two, you get 58,910.
0: What do you think the freight market would be with another fifty eight thousand people out of the market?
2: Well, the freight market uh would um certainly be tighter um so if you take out you know close to sixty thousand drivers that's that's uh that's sixty thousand fewer than we already have, which is not enough and uh but the flip side of that you have to look at is i mean as a society you know i mean do how much or how much more are we willing to pay to have something that's closer to a drug-free roadway.
0: Let me ask you what the two of you think about marijuana here. Marijuana is, I was looking over the data, the the FMCSA data, marijuana is far and away uh, the most uh, the drug most found in testing, no surprise there. Uh, And yet this is something that is going to be legal. Uh, It already is legal in a lot of states. And I think the expectation is it's going to be legal in probably a majority of states eventually. Alcohol is legal. I mean, if you detect, detect, if you could detect alcohol in somebody's system from three weeks earlier, which I guess you can't, um, you're not going to tell a person to stop driving for that if they had a few beers. What do you think is going to be the industry's approach and the FMCSA's approach to marijuana, which increasingly is going to have the legal status of alcohol? Well,
1: I think think there are two sort of, two big issues there. You know, it it has to be legalized federally, I think, before the FMCSA is going to, you know, you're right to point out that state, you know, More and more states are allowing it medically or recreationally, uh, but you've still got that federal ban. And so, you know, if if that were to go away, uh, then I think the other stumbling block is figuring out, you know, uh, sort of lab-type testing on marijuana has been somewhat hindered by that illegal status federally. And so you would need to find a way then, you know, like .08, you know, that's the widely accepted standard for alcohol. You would have to find a way to set that standard for marijuana and then you would need a reliable way to test it you know there are breathalyzed marijuana breathalyzers out on the market but there's a lot of dispute over how accurate how reliable they are and then like colorado has set a standard of you know this much marijuana in your system this is you're you're intoxicated you shouldn't be driving but there's a lot of dispute over that you know because marijuana gets into your fat cells you know and, and it reads it, it's not as uh it's they're having a harder time standardizing that, you know, you ingest alcohol that disperses through your body and, and it g- gets out at a fairly reliable pace. Marijuana, you know, between the lack of a reliable breathalyzer and the way that it sticks in your body, you know, they've had some issues there with trying to kind uh, of sort that out. Do you, so I think do you, Ron hits yeah, so, on the best point there, John.
2: And, and that's that what we really lack now is, is there's, there's just not a reliable roadside test for marijuana and uh so if you have that then all of a sudden i mean from a purely philosophical point of view if you pull somebody over and they and, and they they seem to be high then you could conduct that roadside test but we lack that right now and uh so so until that really comes about at least in my opinion anyway there's 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 not going to be an acceptance there's not going to be an acceptance of marijuana use by truck drivers
0: Do you think there are the brakes are maybe getting put on wider testing or more stricter testing because of the squeeze on drivers? That's a really good question. Um, I, I'm not
2: sure that I can really, uh, speak to the federal government's motivation or lack thereof to allow hair testing. Um, I think that there's, there's, there, there are certainly privacy concerns that they have. Uh, I don't, I don't personally believe in, and. uh, and some of my research has shown that, you know, some of um, some of the racial disparities really are overblown. And uh, so I'm I'm not sure exactly why, unless it's just a political thing, because, you know, there there are certain groups that don't want it to occur.
1: Uh, I'm not sure exactly why it's being slow played. To, to follow up on that just a bit, you know, I, I think from a federal standpoint, I, I think the, the concerns over bias may be playing a role in that in terms of you know, you, you've had hair testing since the 80s. In the 90s, you start to see these studies saying that, it, that it's biased against people with dark hair, uh, that it's biased against folks who use different ethnic hair products. Now, you've seen a lot of studies arguing the other way. Right? It's, you know, certainly there is no, uh, that, that issue hasn't been decided. But in 2019, 2020, you see these Massachusetts courts ruling that, that the Boston Police Department should not have Fired people based solely on hair test results because they believe they were they saw enough there to, to think that it maybe is biased. And I think the federal government, you know, when you look at what they their most recent hair testing proposal, where they they would say you can do hair testing, but you also have to have backup urine or saliva testing. I think where that's coming from is concerns over bias, and they don't want to get behind something that may be biased. I think is is a big factor there.
0: We have we have time for one more. I'm going to ask each of you to to opine on this. Three to five years from now, what do you think the, the national testing regime was was going to look like? Given some of these issues, given the potential mar- uh, legalization legalization, marijuana, given the driver squeeze, given uh, possible racial questions, where, where are we going to be? Are we going to be any different than we are now, or might there be changes?
2: Well, I would certainly hope there's going to be changes. Now, as I said previously, you know, I, mean, I think the racial bias uh, part of this is overblown. Um, I think that 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 serves as a good cover I think for a lot of folks that don't want this to happen I mean hair testing is advocated for by the FBI it's uh it's 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 used by uh, numerous court systems across the nation uh, for uh, certain probationary matters child custody matters I mean it's 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 sound science and uh, so I would hope in five years to get to your question that um, that you know that we'll that that the the trucking companies who want to uh, to use a testing method that fits their needs and, and and their particular applications will have the ability to do that. Will not have to pay twice, and uh, and should be allowed to submit it to the clearinghouse.
0: Ron, your views? Sure. Well,
1: I think in five years you will have oral fluid testing. I Do not think, at the federal level, I don't think you'll have hair testing. I think the bias, I I just can't, you know, they've had years and years of studies, and the Massachusetts courts got to that point in 2020. As slowly as things move, I just can't see, you know, I can't see that changing in five years. I think you'll have saliva testing. I don't think hair testing, but, you know, I could be wrong.
0: Well, a lot of effort's being put into hair testing to to get it done. It's interesting to hear that maybe all that effort will be for naught. So anyway, we want to thank our guests here on Drilling Deep Today, Dr. Doug Voss. He's with the University of Central Arkansas, Dr. Ron Gordon, and he is with the University of Arkansas, and they've been talking about drug testing out on the roads. Uh, Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Waves family of podcasts. We call them Freightcasts. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. Hope you'll give us a listen. Hope you'll subscribe. I'm your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.